I am going to introduce Paul, and then he's going to introduce his colleagues, Drs. Murray and O'Sullivan. So um, most of you probably know Paul Palumbo and don't need to hear a, a long introduction. He is one of our pediatric ID specialists, but also has um, a hand in our international health and works with the DAR DAR program, of course. Um, he has a distinguished career, and I won't uh, list the many interesting things on his CV. He did go to medical school um, in Vermont, and like many of us, did residency at Dartmouth back when the music on the radio was actually good. <laughs> so I won't say anything more about the date. Um, he has uh, a number of very interesting um, projects and publications under his belt, um, but also, as many of you may know, was instrumental in obtaining this um, idea for now. And I won't say more about it, um, because I'll let them talk so that we can have time for questions. Well, thanks very much, uh, Shaleen, for that nice introduction. Um, our goal today is really to uh, share with you what we've been up to as far as uh, developing a clinical trials unit for pediatrics here at Dartmouth uh, with some, some NIH funding. Uh, so we'll be sharing that with you over the next uh, 45 minutes or so. Um, uh, in addition, one of our goals is to try and see if we can recruit some of you to the clinical trials universe. Uh, and work, uh, working together to uh, add to the evidence base that we all practice medicine and pediatrics with. I'd like to start first by um, introducing two of my primary colleagues and partners in this venture. Uh, one is Carolyn Murray, uh, right here, who you may know. Certainly, if any of you have been on the LPMR program uh, out of PDI, Carolyn spends an inordinate amount of time teaching. Uh, but she also works uh, in the Child's Health Study that's a longstanding uh, collaborative project, some of it uh, involved with the Dartmouth Co-op. Uh, so she's a, a really key uh, partner. She has gotten very interested uh, in wood smoke uh, and in iPads, and you'll hear a little bit more about that, uh, so a little teaser there. Um, my other partner in this is Brian O'Sullivan, whom uh, all of you should know. Uh, very well. Brian, you've been here about five years now? Three, three, three years. Seems like five. <laughs> <laughs> I do that to people. <laughs> Brian is a, a professor of uh, pediatrics with us uh, and one of our pulmonologists. Brian comes to us from uh, UMass, where he spent a long uh, and stellar career, uh, involved quite a bit in senior uh, leadership at UMass. Uh, in their clinical trials endeavors. He's been involved with CF research for quite a long time. He led their IRB for a number of years, uh, a thankless task, I suspect, but a very important one. Brian uh, always intrigues me. I, I, I'm always wondering what bow tie he's going to wear <laughs> in the morning. Uh, he has a, quite an array of bow ties. Uh, and I'd be remiss if I didn't introduce uh, two really key players uh, in this endeavor. Uh, you all know Dean Jarvis, uh, who's been a research nurse in pediatrics and has really been the benchmark or the foundation of pediatric clinical trials at Dartmouth for, I don't know, Dean, 20 years at least. Uh, and she's a really key player. She's our overall research coordinator. And we wouldn't be here without her uh, for sure. Uh, so a very key player. And another key player is Deb Johnson, who works with Carolyn and uh, the Dartmouth Co-op and plays a similar role to Dean in the Dartmouth uh, Co-op universe. Carolyn will mention a little bit more about that uh, as we move on. So what are we uh, into? We're into a new, newly formed national clinical trials network for pediatrics. Um, there are 17 clinical sites in 17 states. They're listed here. This black mark is where the coordinating center and the data management center is in Little Rock, Arkansas, at the University of Arkansas. Uh, we're fortunate to have sites way out there in Alaska and Hawaii. We've been lobbying for a national meeting in Hawaii, but have not been successful yet uh, in, in getting that choice. There's five targeted areas of investigation for our new network, which is called the Idea States Pediatric Clinical Trials Network. Pre, peri, and postnatal outcomes, neurodevelopment, airways, obesity, and a grab bag category called child health. 
which has been focused on technology in, in, uh, in large measure. Now we're part, the idea states network is part of a bigger system called ECHO. Uh, this is a, a program that comes out of the NIH director's office. Uh, it stands for the environmental consequences of health outcomes in children. There are seven components, but there is, there is a major coordinating center in Duke, data analysis center at Duke. Um, and then there are these cohort sites. Margaret Carragas here at Dartmouth has one of those sites, uh, but I believe there's at least 50 uh, cohorts in all. And these are where all of these big echo projects are located. As opposed to the idea states, which tend to be in rural states, the echo cohort sites um, are scattered largely in metropolitan areas around the country. Uh, we're charged with doing interventional trials. The cohort studies do observational cohort studies, uh, testing hypotheses. So we, our charge is to implement and develop, develop clinical trials among rural and medically underserved and to conduct interventional trials. So that's our hallmark. We're also charged with coordinating and building a workforce capacity to conduct pediatric research. So it's a really great opportunity for us at Dartmouth and the 16 other sites in the Idea States network to build capacity uh, locally where it, where it previously uh, didn't exist or was underrepresented. So the organizational structure for the network that we're part of, we have the 17 <coughs> clinical trials units. They're overseen and governed by a steering committee made up of the site PIs and NIH leadership. There's a smaller core leadership group over here uh, for more facile and uh, quick decision making. Uh, and then there's a senior ECHO program office. Matt Gilman was recruited by the NIH director out of Harvard to lead the entire ECHO program and his office leads um, the ISPCTN. There's an external advisory board which has met once already. I mentioned the coordinating centers in Little Rock and the data management center. And the, we have five working groups um, uh, to uh, probe uh, for, for future trials. So um, our task as a network is to identify developed trials. This is low-hanging fruit. We can quickly get involved with other studies that are already in the field or about to go in the field. We can also identify trials from concepts or developed trials uh, de novo. Uh, that's a longer process as you might imagine. Uh, we can identify local investigators to link with our network efforts. So we have been actively doing that. And if any of you have ideas uh, for either local, local uh, studies or studies that might be conducted within our larger network, please let us know. Uh, we can try to work together with you on that. Um, we've already had uh, two investigators lead trial development within um, the Idea States Network. One of them is Brian, and he'll be telling you about his work. Uh, the, other is the other two are Tyler Hartman and Bob Darnell, whose project got pretty far, but did not reach uh, high enough priority to uh, be activated. We're also working with Synergy, TDI, and other academic apartments, departments uh, for uh, clinical trial design and development. Uh, but also for education uh, and, and mentoring, uh, career mentoring. So um, we have really three performance sites, one here at DH Lebanon uh, in the center uh, with Dean in charge. Uh, and Dean is coordinating this uh, trivalent uh, clinical trials unit structure. Uh, we also have the Dartmouth Co-op, which Carolyn will uh, mention more. And this is a real opportunity for us to work with community practices in the, in the bi-state region. Uh, and finally, we have a growing clinical trials unit that is both pediatric and adult down in Manchester led by Brian. Uh, and he'll tell you a little bit more about what's going on there. Part of that is in uh, conjunction with Synergy, which is our CTSA program here. There are many resources, source needs, mentoring, uh, 
lots of targeted skill sets um, and funding uh, for any local uh, academician who might want to uh, engage clinical trials. There are many resources. Synergy is, is one, uh, clearly. TDI is a long-standing resource here in the Dartmouth community. We're becoming a resource uh, for interested investigators. Uh, and the Department of Pediatrics has some resources uh, also, including some funding opportunities, which you're probably aware of. So right now, uh, we just came last week from a, uh, a national meeting of our network. Uh, Carolyn, Dean, Brian, and I were there. Uh, there are, there over the past six months or so, there have been four concepts that have moved to trial development. One, uh, the preemie caffeine extension study led by Tara, Tyler, and Bob. Uh, a second, an indoor wood, uh, wood smoke intervention, uh, which Carolyn has been very interested in, uh, as have I. Uh, a vitamin D in youth with asthma and obesity uh, is Brian's brainchild, and we're going to hear much more about that. And another uh, collaborative trial called I Am Healthy. Uh, it's a, uh, a youth obesity intervention study. So, wood smoke disappeared. It did not uh, uh, get approved for final development. Uh, but the group that has been involved with wood smoke, and one of the reasons um, it wasn't approved for development is that it really couldn't be conducted in a majority of the 17 sites in the network. We had a set of northern tier sites, including Montana, Alaska, um, Vermont, and, and us here in New Hampshire that were very interested in it. And so outside of the network, we're still pursuing uh, some options there. Uh, the preemie caffeine extension trial also came off the list, largely because uh, it was going to require uh, an FDA IND application, uh, and there was uh, some perception that there was risk in the trial, and uh, this network in its early stage is very risk averse. So we're left with uh, two very interesting studies, which we'll hear about today. Uh, in addition, there's a study out of Duke and the Pediatric Trials Network called POPS, which is uh, pharmacokinetics of understudied under, uh, pediatric drugs, which is most of the drugs that we're, uh, we're using. We're using them off-label. Uh, so that's one that we're going to get involved with. Uh, and there's been a new initiative out of the NIH director's office and NACHD called NOWS Neonatal Opioid Withdrawal Syndrome. This is in very early stage, but there's an extreme amount of excitement uh, around this concept uh, that's developing rapidly. There's a lot of trials that we're currently supporting locally, and when I say we, it's largely Dean uh, who's doing this work. There's a lot of PICU and ICN work being done with multiple investigators, uh, and there's uh, work outside of that venue, uh, again, with multiple investigators. We are open to requests for support, whether it be IRB applications, um, conducting a trial, data management, et cetera. We're open to uh, requests of that type. Uh, we're not going to be able to do everything. But as you can see, we've got a pretty good list here now, and we do have room uh, to expand on this. So with that, I think I will hand this over to, uh, to Carolyn to talk about the co-op, and I am healthy. Okay, hopefully we merged our slides, and that's great. That's a good sign. Well, thanks to Keith in abstention. First of all, can you hear me? Okay. Just have to turn it on. Might be that I'm not close enough. It is on. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Nope. Yes. So, uh, thank you to Keith in abstention, to all of you for coming today to hear about this really tremendous opportunity for Dartmouth. Um, to really advance the science of health promotion and disease prevention in our pediatric population. As Paul mentioned, um, I um, have been working with uh, Margaret Carragas in the Department of Epidemiology as director of her Outreach and Research Translation Corps for the Dartmouth Children's Environmental Health and Disease Prevention Research Center. And if that makes you wonder why I'm here today, I'm just going to briefly take you back five years and hopefully connect the dots to a number of the things that Paul introduced um, to about this, this trial. And, um, Five years ago, um, Margaret approached me about joining her established group, research group, um, 
that started looking at uh, early life exposures to metals and, and food and water um, over time. And they were recruiting women in private, wa from private wells um, across New Hampshire in about the 20, 20th week of pregnancy and following them out. And uh, on the far right there, I don't have my pointer here, you'll see a map of New Hampshire. You'll see the two recruitment areas. And they were um, particularly interested in recruiting women on private wells because private wells are not regulated by the EPA. And we know, based on USGS surveys, that uh, New Hampshire is particularly um, high prevalence of elevated arsenic in wells. And so um, essentially, um, she was able to uh, get Superfund, um, a, a well-established research group here at the college, Toxic Metal Superfund, to, to, to start this trial and then really leverage the interest in this really unique cohort study um, to become a full-fledged children's environmental health center, one of about 15 across the country. And this is funded by NIE, NIEHS and EPA. And it was at that time that I joined Margaret. And our real challenge then was um, how you do outreach and translation as we're looking at these early, early cohort findings and recognizing that we're seeing some uh, influence, some outcome suggesting um, infant and child uh, outcome issues with arsenic exposure in particular. And so you see that this formed the Children's Center. And just to loop back to what Paul was saying is that Margaret really successfully has continued to leverage the, the, the focus on this cohort, which is now at 1,700 infant-child pairs with a really uh, robust amount of bio um, biomonitoring and specimens and really looking at the whole range of health effects in children, now funded out to five years. And with ECHO, the Environmental Influences on Child Health Outcomes um, funds that we, we received last year, along with the Idea States, is allowing that um, cohort to expand and look at even more environmental health um, exposures. So that really brought, um, so back five years when I joined the group, we were already seeing some of these studies coming out from our cohort saying we were seeing um, influence of arsenic exposure in our um, babies in our cohort study. And how do we get that information out to stakeholders, in particular knowing that um, the issue about well water in New Hampshire is one in which it's not regulated, people don't aren't aware of the prevalence of groundwater contamination and the importance of testing. And so faced with that, um, I had um, the thought to approach the Dartmouth Co-op. And this is a truly uh, Hanover story because it, it's important to know your neighbors. And across the street um, is uh, Artis Olson, the current research director of the Dartmouth Co-op, and her husband, who was the previous research director. And it was really this opportunity to say, well, how could, would the Children's Center be able to partner with the co-op and look at them as a mechanism for doing outreach for what we're seeing in our observational trials? And so as many of you know, the Dartmouth Co-op is well-established practice-based research network, has over 200 clinicians and over 100 practices, has an established track record of doing really um, important practice-based research. They're interested in quality improvement. They're interested in looking at types of interventions that are feasible and science-based in a busy community practice. And um, they have a very committed group. And they have great leadership through artists and then Debbie Johnson, who's the research coordinator. And so they expressed an interest in partnering with us. And so about five years ago, we came up with this chart. And this just is a picture on the left. And I know it's a little fuzzy, but it's basically a GIS map looking at probability of elevated groundwater arsenic, with the white areas being areas that exceed the EPA's safety limit of 10 parts per billion. Um, to orient you, the yellow line in the middle is the Connecticut River, Vermont on the left, New Hampshire on the right. The red dots are the co-op practices. And this was a great. And then the little squares of the towns in the various states. And this was a great, um, this was a great method of, of gathering attention of co-op practices because they could see their geocoded site and the red dots and see where they may be in terms of their probability of groundwater arsenic. And most of the practices had at least a sense of the percentage of their patient population that were dependent on private water systems. So this was just a very small example of how an observational study, which is the New Hampshire birth cohort study, could be then looked at for an opportunity to build to an intervention trial, which is with, with artists' uh, help in designing, was a private well testing uh, intervention in routine pediatric care, uh, how best practices to integrate that. And the 12 stars are the 12 practices in the co-op that volunteered with us in this adventure of thinking about how to best integrate promotion of private well testing 
in primary, pediatric primary care. Um, so I, I give all this as background because when the RFA came out for the idea states, the Dartmouth Co-op was just such a logical partner. Um, they embody the key priorities of the ISPCTN, the Idea States Pediatric Clinical Trial <laughs> Network, in that they are um, community level. Um, they are primarily, not all, but very much rural-based. They serve underserved populations and or populations, pediatric populations that are underrepresented in clinical trials. And they have a unique opportunity to look at questions that um, should be best be answered and addressed in practices for where they're at the ground level and the need um, is greatest. Um, so at that point in time, um, my, we went forward with uh, joining in on that grant. Um, and as Paul uh, described, I was quite enthused about one of the first um, grants that came <coughs> forward because I have a particular interest in environmental health, obviously, and and there was a group of us really interested in um, indoor air quality, in particular uh, wood smoke and uh, lower airways disease in children. Um, we still have hopes for that trial, but it did not get um, uh, the okay to go forward. But there's been a learning experience and a learning curve in this network that um, I am I'm trying to take with a um, good humor. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I did want to bring back um, at, just a description of the trial that is currently um, going forward in the development process, just as an example of the kinds of opportunities to be thinking about for uh, Dartmouth, the co-op, and for us in general in terms of addressing a, a really major public health issue that I don't really have to uh, describe to this audience in pediatric obesity. And the, um, so I Am Healthy comes out of the University of Kansas. The PI is a, um, a pediatric psychologist, Ann Davis, and it's currently an R01 approved intervention that's school-based. And so the protocol is being adapted from a school-based intervention. It's, um, it's an RCT of a remotely delivered iPad, which is the I and I am healthy, family-based pediatric obesity intervention and the, versus an active newsletter control. Um, its aims are to assess the effectiveness of this mobile technology on change in child BMIZ as compared to this newsletter intervention group. Secondary objectives are a number of them. Um, interestingly enough, it's, they're looking at the change in the caregiver's BMI as compared to the newsletter intervention. They will be looking at child nutrition impact as there's a nutritional component to this. And they're looking at the effectiveness of this mobile technology on moderate to visit vigorous physical activity in a child as compared to the intervention group. Um, the interventions, as I mentioned, was this iPad-delivered, psychologist-based, family-based, remote um, counseling um, on nutrition, behavior, and physical activity. And so, and that's uh, partnered with clinic visits where the weight and other outcome measures will be taken versus this active newsletter. These are all Currently, the, the advantage of this trial right now, these, the, the modules in terms of the iPad-based delivered education and the newsletters are all essentially done. They're being modified, but they're, they're, it's actually ongoing place, it's going on right now in schools in a region of Kansas. So there is this parallel school versus clinic, which I think is really intriguing. Um, the inclusion criteria, the, the ones to point out are the um, obviously, the obesity level greater than or equal to 85th to 99th percentile and uh, 6 to 11 years. And it is because of the complexity of translation, it is right now um, restricted to English speaking. This rurality um, component here is under great debate amongst the network. And this could be challenging for us in terms of looking at practices in the co-op that would be eligible. But this is, as I said, this is a work in progress. And this protocol writing group got a lot of feedback last week from us. So this may be changing. Um, the selected measures are heightened weight of the caregiver and the child, 24-hour dietary recall from the child, and actograph, a real-time activity measurement, excuse me, monitoring system um, for the child. This is a brief high-level look at the intervention timeline. You'll see it's over eight months with weekly sessions on the iPad for weeks one through eight, followed by monthly sessions for months three through eight. Um, and then 11 hours of this individual time mobile 
technology with a registered dietitian, as well as clinic visits versus this newsletter intervention. Um, they've mapped all the curriculum and learning that the newsletter is doing very similarly to the um, iPad interventions. And as again, this, th these are just being rolled out now for our review, but our understanding is this has, this has already been established and NIH approved. The randomization is interesting. It'll be at the clinic level. And we'd have, if we can meet the criteria for <coughs> clinic involvement, we'd have the opportunity to have up to four clinical sites. And they'd be paired one-to-one, -one, iPad versus newsletter. Um, and they would be looking at matching you know, proportionally the percent of the patient population that are Medicaid and the degree of rurality. Um, patient race for us really, we, we don't follow we don't qualify for that um, in terms of diversity, but we could qualify on number one and number two in terms of the um, selection criteria for clinics. Um, as I said, clinics would be the unit of randomization in a one-to-one -one fashion. So I share with this, um, at this point in time, it's sort of a high-level example of a trial that we would have great capacity to engage in. I mean, I really think that um, the co-op is well uh, situated to do this kind of um, important clinical trial. It certainly addresses a critical public health issue, and the resources that it would pro provide would further support development of co-op research capacity and infrastructure. And that's really what my role has been in this last six months, has really been trying to um, keep an eye out on, on what's coming through on the network that could be applicable to the co-op. And, you, and relying on Debbie Johnson and others to sort of build up our infrastructure so that when there's a trial in the pipeline, we're ready. We, we, know how, we know our capacity, we know our demographics, and we could then step forward to be a potential clinical site. Um, so stay tuned. It's a bit of a long and winding road, a little longer and more winding than I had anticipated. But, um, but I think we're well poised, and it really is a tremendous um, opportunity. And, when we get to questions, I welcome input and ideas and enthusiasm for those that see aspects of this that align with their interests. Um, and I would be remiss not to thank those on this uh, page for their help, um, particularly the co-op, uh, Artis Olson and Debbie Johnson. Kathy Morrow really helped push uh, us to uh, put in for the RFA, and Maureen Boardman and the co-op board of directors. And just as an aside, I forgot to ask, how many people in the room right now are in co-op practices? Okay, two in the side there. So great. So thank you. And I think we're taking questions at the end. So I'm going to turn it over to Brian. Great. I'll take Great. Thank you. Woo. Now I'm too loud. <clears throat> I'll try not to make too much noise here. So a couple of things. I'm going to talk about two things. One is what's going on in Manchester at least a brief overview. I think a lot of you know that there is a clinical research unit there, but for those of you who don't, um, the uh, dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center in Manchester has been incredibly um, helpful and cooperative <clears throat> with helping clinical research in pediatrics and in general, in, in adult and pediatrics, get going in Manchester. Obviously, as you all know, the bulk of the population in the state is south of Concord, uh, not unfortunately up here in the uh, Lebanon-Hanover area. Um, so when we're trying to, trying to enroll in clinical trials um, in the state of New Hampshire. It's important to have access for uh, research subjects in the southern part of the state. Um, so DHMC has been very helpful. They've given us a, well, not given us, a Synergy and, uh, and DHMC working together. We have a dedicated room uh, in our clinic in Manchester that is just for research. It's very well outfitted. Uh, we have a research manager. She's not a nurse, but Chantel Lambert Harris has worked incredibly hard to get this research unit up and going uh, and is willing to work with any of you up here who have studies that you want to recruit patients in the South. Please get in touch with Chantel because we want more studies. We, we have capacity. Um, so if you have research going on where you have uh, subjects who live in the southern part of the state and you'd like to open up uh, a kind of a branch for them to make their recruitment easier, uh, please work with us. And Peter Wright has worked with us some, and unfortunately that trial didn't go forward, but uh, uh, we're eager to help people here. We're doing both adult and pediatric studies. Um, and again, the funding is through Synergy. Um, the Idea States grant that we've just gotten for pediatric trials in particular 
Uh, we're hoping to get more nursing support through both DHMC and the Idea States uh, grant money. So although Chantel's not an RN, we've pulled in some RNs doing kind of per diem stuff, but we're hoping to get a full-time uh, research nurse in Manchester. We're kind of caught in this catch-22 that it's hard to fund a research nurse if you don't have trials, but it's hard to do trials if you don't have a research nurse. So we're kind of caught a little bit in this catch-22, and we're hoping we can kind of break through that and get that going for us. Um, we have a lot of studies going now already, uh, driven in large part by uh, the CF uh, group, of which I am part, uh, and Lou Gwill, uh, as well as adult and pediatric uh, uh, CF research. Dana Dorman, our nurse, uh, uh, research nurse coordinator in Manchester works incredibly hard to get trials going. So frankly, the bulk of the trials going on in Manchester now are in fact uh, cystic fibrosis related. Um, along with Mark Coffley, we've got, uh, and I think Auden McClure has been involved with this too, we have a pediatric uh, GI obesity registry going. Um, as has already been alluded to, obesity is a major issue throughout the country and certainly uh, in New Hampshire. Uh, we also have a couple of adult studies going on right now, including uh, GI study uh, and a dermatology study, um, and we're looking to get to expand those uh, two departments in particular. Expressed interest in doing trials in Manchester. So, quick overview, just to let all of you guys know that in fact there is a research unit in Manchester. We do have um, uh, capability, and we've got capacity to do more. So, if any of you have uh, research trials going on and you want to recruit people in the south, please let us know. Okay, segueing from that back to kind of the idea state stuff. Um, when this uh, group got together and they identified five areas that Paul went over, two of the areas were airways disease and obesity. And I came uh, to Manchester about three years ago now, and I happened to see my asthma patients right down the hall from where Mark Hoffley's doing his obesity uh, clinic, and we realized that there was a lot of overlap, that we were seeing a lot of kids who had, unfortunately, both asthma and obesity. And uh, being a little bit of a politician, it occurred to me that if I could present a, a study that overlapped two of the five units, that perhaps the NIH would look upon that a little more favorably in terms of funding. So um, I'm going to go through what our trial is set up to be. It has not been completely approved yet. We're going through the process, which... Uh, as Carolyn mentioned, is a long and winding road. And uh, um, we have uh, weekly meetings, uh, telephone meetings. We've met in person a handful of times. Um, and there's uh, a lot going on. So we aren't ready to run this trial yet. Um, but I'll run, run you through what we're doing right now and what we're thinking about. So obviously, as we've already talked about, asthma and obesity are both major public health problems. Um, lots of disease burden in both of these uh, categories. Um, and interestingly, the CDC has reported that there's a huge number of individuals, 39% of individuals with asthma in the U.S. are also obese. So there's this huge overlap between obesity and asthma. Um, perhaps even more so in rural states. Let's see. Uh, uh, oops, yeah. So uh, in children, you can see uh, you know, obesity is terrible everywhere, but it's even more of a problem in small rural areas than anywhere else. So this is data from 2011-12. My guess is five years later, um, it's uh, even worse, unfortunately. Um, one of the keys to this trial is that obesity is a problem in all, eventually all states, but particularly in the states that we're talking about that are small rural states. A lot of our idea states programs are in fact in the south, Louisiana, Mississippi, Arkansas, and they have a particularly uh, problematic issue with obesity and asthma. So in going forward with this trial, our small rural states, 17 of them, um, really are great targets for doing a trial on uh, the combined uh, obesity and asthma uh, issue. So what about obesity, asthma, and vitamin D? Well, um, obesity can cause mechanical changes that are disadvantageous to asthma, including just the weight loading. If you've got a lot of extra weight on your chest and abdomen, pushing your diaphragm up, it's harder to breathe. But also over time, you get thickening of the airways, uh, you get stiffness of the airways, and particularly in adults who have unfortunately had a lifetime of obesity, the airway structure itself changes and asthma and, and wheezing and breathing problems are more dramatic. Um, vitamin D deficiency has been associated with uh, treatment-resistant asthma. There have been a number of studies, including in pediatrics, looking at vitamin D levels and those children who are vitamin D deficient um, or grossly insufficient have a higher rate of asthma that's difficult to treat. So that was part of the thinking that went into this. 
Um, not surprisingly, obesity alone is a uh, contributing factor to vitamin D deficiency. Vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin. People who are overweight have a lot of adipose tissue. It serves as a sink for vitamin D. Um, and there have been uh, many studies now, observational studies in the United States, showing that obese children have low vitamin D levels. Um, lipid is a great, unfortunately great, source of inflammatory mediators. Uh, leptin, other adipokines, and uh, cytokines contribute to inflammation. Um, so both obesity and airway inflammation and asthma are inflammatory diseases. So the idea of something that can control this uh, inflammation is uh, particularly uh, um, uh, good for us, beneficial for us. Um, and vitamin D is something that can ameliorate production of some of these pro-inflammatory mediators. So kind of with all of this together, obesity is a huge problem, asthma and obesity is a huge problem. These are inflammatory issues, and vitamin D is an anti-inflammatory. Makes it seem like vitamin D may be a low-cost, high-impact treatment for obesity-related asthma. And when we talk about rural populations and underserved populations, one of the, one of the issues is cost. Vitamin D is incredibly cheap. So if we can get people to take vitamin D and have improved outcomes, that's a great major impact on a public health uh, basis. Now, when I first thought of this, I said, oh, this is great. We'll take some overweight children who have asthma, we'll give them vitamin D in one group, we'll do a randomized controlled trial, we'll do another group that doesn't get this, and we'll be all set, and we'll be done, and it'll be over in six months. Well, <clears throat> it doesn't work that way, does it? Um, one of the issues we got into is that very few studies have been done on, A, what's a good level of vitamin D if we're going to help protect from asthma, and B, what's the right dose for an overweight child? And so as we started going on this, we ended up having to do and having to write what we're hoping to do is a pilot, really it was kind of a PK study to figure out A, what dose should we give, and B, what levels are we going to get from that dose, and will that be protective? So it turns out that just this, uh, this year, in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology, uh, uh, Gus Latanja and Scott Weiss, who were from uh, Brigham and Women's uh, Hospital in Boston and part of the Harvard system, came out with a commentary that um, looked at uh, kind of what's going on with vitamin D in childhood. I won't try to read all of the slide, but essentially there's lots of benefits to having good vitamin D levels, and what should that level be? And they suggested that greater than 40 nanograms per ml appears to decrease respiratory infections and may decrease inflammation in airways. Now, so they said that's probably the level we should get to. I don't know how many of you do vitamin D levels frequently in our CF clinic because, again, it's a fat-soluble vitamin and not absorbed well in our CF patients. We look at vitamin D all the time. Not very many people in our clinic have vitamin D levels of 40 or more. And in northern climes where there's not a lot of sunshine, you know, 30 and, a, and above is kind of considered sufficient um, vitamin D levels. Getting up in the 40, 50 range is actually pretty hard. Um, and children who are obese, studies that have been done on that show that a vast majority have levels under 30 and many under 20 nanograms per ml, so far away from this 40. Um, there was a study done in adults that got published in JAMA, I think it was 2014, looking at obese adults, giving them vitamin D supplementation. Um, they were using a loading dose of 100,000 units of vitamin D and then 4,000 units a day for um, 28 weeks. And they did get levels up to about 40. The mean level was 40 with a very, actually a very tight confidence interval. So it was all right around 40. They did not see a dramatic change in asthma control, but they did see a, a trend towards less, a need for less asthma control or medications in these adults. Adult obesity asthma is different from childhood obesity asthma. Childhood obesity asthma is less mechanical and more inflammatory. So the fact that an anti-inflammatory was helpful in adults um, would make us think that it's going to be even more helpful in children. So the primary objective of this kind of PK study is to determine an appropriate vitamin D dose to get up to that level of 40 nanograms per ml, particularly in obese and overweight children uh, who do have asthma. Um, and we're looking at children with asthma and not just pure obesity because we do want to start to collect some data on what it does clinically. So we also want to look at safety. Vitamin D is incredibly safe. Um, there have been a number of publications now that show that you really need to be up around, again, I'm talking about most people in the 20, 30 range, if we're happy 30, 40, we'd like to get to. A lot of these 
toxicity is under current up around 150 nanograms per ml. So the, the safety window is incredibly large, which is good. That makes it easier to say we're going to give a lot. But we are going to be looking at safety uh, endpoints too. Um, and again, we're doing this in children who are obese and asthma uh, and have asthma, not only to look at what dose gets us to what level, but to begin to assess, uh, and again, in exploratory endpoints, um, the effect of asthma, uh, vitamin D supplementation on asthma control and on uh, markers of inflammation like platelet count, leptin levels, uh, TNF-alpha, and a couple of different interleukins. From our Idea States Clinical Trials Network um, uh, standpoint, one of the advantages, again, is that all 17 sites could take part. Now, there's a bunch of different studies going on. It's unlikely that all 17 will, but it would be open to everybody, uh, particularly, again, the southern states, um, which seem to have a, a significant burden of obesity and asthma may be interested in this trial. Um, we're going to be looking at six to 18-year-olds giving a loading dose of 50,000 IUs. That's less than what they gave in adults in the uh, uh, study that was published in JAMA. And then a daily vitamin D dose, it's a bit more, with the idea, again, that obesity is going to be harder to fill up that sink of adipose tissue. And plus, we want to get above what they got in the uh, study that was in JAMA, where they kind of hit the 40 level, but not quite in everybody. We want to get up above that. Um, we're going to do so. There's no randomization, but we're going to divide the, the cohorts into uh, two different age groups to look at the effect in different age groups, and also at degrees of obesity. Now, just plain overweight is considered 85th percentile BMI for age to 95th. So we'll look at overweight. And then we're going to look at obese. And we're not putting an upper limit on that, but we do recognize that someone who's much, much greater than 99th may have an even larger sink uh, of adipose tissue. And so we're uh, doing some uh, a priori uh, uh, looks at uh, different, uh, uh, different weight classes, too. Um, we're going to be looking at vitamin D levels. Uh, monthly over 16 weeks, seeing how long it takes to get up to the level we want and if we achieve the level we want. And if we don't, we'll be able to do some PK analysis to kind of then determine what we should be able to do, uh, begin to assess asthma control. Inclusion criteria, again, um, already said this part. Uh, we do want people who have, you know, how do you diagnose if someone has, or how do you determine if someone has asthma for a study like this? We're trying to be pretty wide open. We don't want to limit ourselves too awfully much. Um, so we're going to say physician diagnosed asthma, not just a family saying my child wheezes sometimes. Um, so they have to be on some controller medicine like inhaled corticosteroid, inhaled corticosteroid plus a long-acting beta agonist, or something like uh, Montelukast, the leukotriene receptor antagonist. We want people who are insufficient with vitamin D at, at entry. Uh, and because these are little pills, they're actually quite easy to swallow. Um, but we do, the children will need to be able to swallow. So we may lose some kids at the younger age range who can't swallow uh, vitamin D. We have to be careful. Again, safety is a big deal. So uh, vitamin D supplementation, you worry about calcium metabolism, hypercalcemia, stone formation. So um, we don't want anyone who's got known kidney stone or calcium metabolism problems, and that would include Williams syndrome. Um, vitamin D feeds granulomas, so we don't want anyone who's got a granulomatous disease uh, in the study. Uh, we're not looking to be endocrinologists. Uh, I'm certainly not an endocrinologist. So if vitamin D level is really low or if they've got clinical rickets, those children need to be seeing an endocrinologist and get uh, uh, their vitamin D levels corrected uh, clinically. Um, a lot of the overweight children are going to have non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Uh, that's not an exclusion criteria, but because the liver plays an important role in vitamin D uh, metabolism, we don't want someone who's got known liver failure. Um, and a lot of our children who are overweight, unfortunately, have type 2 diabetes. Uh, we're not, not excluding them, uh, provided they don't have uh, documented uh, renal disease. Um, Lots of kids are already on daily multivitamins. Most of those have no more than 400 international units per day, so we can allow someone in who's already on a vitamin D supplement. Um, one of the things that's come up, what about tanning beds? What about north versus south in, in terms of sun exposure? We're going to have to work through that. We are asking anyone who's in it not to change whatever their usual habits are, not to start going to tanning beds. Um, um, and we are hoping that we'll get, uh, with um, north and south, we'll get people from all areas. Although my colleague, one of the co-writers on this 
uh, application is from Mississippi, and he says the kids in his practice play video games just as much as the kids in New Hampshire and are never outside anyway, so it doesn't really much matter uh, whether we do north or south. Um, and then finally, getting back to what my original thought was, we'd like to do a large randomized controlled trial, but first, again, we have to know what dose to give, uh, how quickly we're going to get people up. But the idea, again, trying to take in sun exposure and everything would be a large randomized controlled trial uh, with enough vitamin D to get levels up to this supposed threshold, which we actually don't even know is the right threshold, um, but we think 40 nanograms per ml is probably the, the best uh, area to get to. Um, and that would be a 48-week trial, a whole year, so that we would, in fact, take into account that people would, no matter when they enrolled, would stay in through all four seasons to uh, hopefully get seasonality uh, uh, less of an important variable there. Um, but that's part two. Um, we're still in the process of getting part one done. And just to kind of let you know what this is, and those of you who've done large clinical trials know this already, but we've been working at this for probably six months already. We have weekly phone calls. We've put this to different groups that they come back and question some of our concerns. And that's good. We've gotten a lot of very good feedback. Um, this is supposed to go to the NIH in November for funding. And so fingers crossed that this will really get funded. And then we'd be starting up probably in spring uh, of 2018. So uh, this is something, you know, Lou and I have talked about it a little bit, but certainly would be looking for uh, patients and from any of your practices uh, who have asthma and obesity, um, who you'd like to have in this study, certainly be looking for that if this does get funded. So Paul, I'll give this back to you now. Okay, thanks, Brian. Um, I, I think, Brian, also in your pilot, that you're hoping to start uh, in first or second quarter of 2018, you're also going to be looking at some inflammatory markers. Well, I, yes, it, it, that's, yeah. so TNF-alpha, uh, leptin, uh, interleukins, yeah, to look for that stuff. That one doesn't work. I'm sorry. Uh, we're looking to have uh, 80 available, uh, valuable uh, children in it. So. We know we're going to lose screening, so we're going to screen much more than 80 to get 80 um, in it. Again, if we're talking about 10, 12 sites taking part, we're talking about roughly six, eight uh, children per site, something like that. Thanks so much, Brian. Um, I'm going to just take a quick minute uh, before questions, if, if that sounds okay, Shalene, to talk about. Uh, okay, great. Um, there's a trial of convenience that is um, surfaced. It's been around for a while in a network called the Pediatric Trials Network, which is uh, led out of Duke. Um, it's funded by NICHD. Uh, and as I said, the Duke Clinical Research Institute is running this trial. It's been in the field for about seven years. It's a pharmacokinetic study of understudied drugs administered to children for standard of care. You're all probably aware that likely 75% of the drugs we use in pediatrics have not been studied as far as dosing and safety. We're extrapolating from adult data, and we're using a lot of drugs that have not been specifically studied in children. Uh, so uh, what this trial proposes to do is to identify children who are under standard of care receiving a list of drugs that have been selected for study uh, and doing population PK, which means a single blood sample uh, from uh, an enrolled child. It's not an extensive PK trial. It's a population uh, uh, convenience uh, study. About 25 children uh, per drug, per age bracket, are proposed to be recruited. Those 25 time points will be fed into a PK model, uh, and we'll find out whether we're on target based on adult data as far as dosing achieved uh, or drug level achieved. Uh, if so, that uh, information could be submitted to the FDA for FDA approval uh, and an indication for children. Uh, and within the context of this study, there have been five or six drugs that have led to uh, FDA approvals. If the PK model suggests that uh, we're not on target, that's an indication or a suggestion that we should be doing a more involved study. The list of drugs is constantly changing. Uh, some of the drugs uh, get completed data sets and come off the list. Additional drugs are added as interest is expressed. This is the current list of drugs. There's about 30 of them, I believe. Um, you're not going to be able to read that very well, but uh, 
this is the uh, strategy that's being used. This is a, a list of some of the drugs on the left. You can see there are age groups across the top running from preterm out to adolescence. We're also looking in the far right-hand top, we're looking at some children who are obese and some children who are on ECMO. ECMO is a non-issue for us here, as you know, so we won't be uh, trying to recruit there, but certainly obese children uh, are prevalent here. Um, the drugs are, are uh, congregated in these specialty areas. There's a lot of neuro and psych drugs in particular. Dean and I have been making the rounds, talking to people, uh, our colleagues in these different categories uh, to find whether there's interest in whether, in fact, these drugs are being used. There seems to be a lot of excitement and interest. So when this trial opens, and we expect it to open first quarter 2018, we may be working with many of you in these groups uh, to identify children who are receiving these drugs and to see if they're recruitable or enrollable into, into this study. Very convenient study, um, and we could really add to the evidence base that we practice with. Finally, uh, a very exciting area, neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome. Uh, there's been a lot of work done here at Dartmouth. Uh, many of our colleagues are involved in this area of work. Um, it is attracting a lot of attention nationally. Uh, the NIH Director's Office, the ECHO ISPCTN leadership at NIH, working groups within the ISPCTN, in particular the Pre-Peri and Postnatal Outcome Working Group and the Neurodevelopment Working Group, uh, as well as NICHD, have all converged. They started separately, but they've all converged together. As I mentioned, we had a face-to-face -face meeting last, uh, last week, uh, and this initiative really was jump-started. We're not sure what we're going to be doing yet, but within a year we should have trials in the field conducted in our network uh, that focus on some of the issues of uh, NOWS. Uh, you might also uh, be aware that there was a recent uh, Think Tank, uh, uh, supported by NICHD, ACOG, AAP, Maternal Fetal Medicine Group, CDC, and March of Dimes, uh, and there was a July publication in OBGYN, uh, which was basically an executive summary of that joint workshop. They were probing what do we know and what don't we know in this area. Basic message, we don't know very much. Uh, as far as intervention, we don't know what works and what doesn't uh, in a rigorous fashion. So there's room for a lot of work. Uh, so this is a, a new initiative uh, that's coming out of an age that we expect our network to play a very prominent role in. We'll also be working with the neonatal, uh, NIH neonatal network, uh, which has been around for a number of years. There's a few sites there that are interested. But I suspect all 17 sites in the um, uh, in the Idea States Network will uh, will engage this uh, enthusiastically. Uh, so stay tuned there. There may be opportunities here at Dartmouth and for some uh, clinicians here uh, to get involved in this potentially from the ground level. But it's moving very fast uh, and there's a lot of players already um, at the table. So I think I will stop there. Thank you for your attention. Uh, and if there are any questions, we can certainly uh, have a dialogue. So there's uh, two levels to that question, I suspect. One is if we're working within the Idea States Network and we're developing a trial like Brian is yep. and like Tyler and Bob were doing, uh, there is rigorous, uh, robust statistical support largely coming out of the, uh, uh, the center in Arkansas. So there, there is, uh, you know, a lot of support. If we're just doing a trial locally that's not being conducted under the umbrella of the 17 states idea states network, then we have to look to local resources. Um, I think we can help identify and encourage biostat support through Synergy or TDI. 
I know is when we've gone individually to those resources, um, I think the responses have been less than uh, enthusiastic, shall I say. I think, Shalane, you've experienced that yourself. We have uh, spoken with Ellen Green and the Synergy folks um, about this. I think they're starting to understand that they need to uh, be a little bit more aggressive and supportive in that, in that frame. But if you're having problems with a local project, uh, let us know and we can help uh, you know, fight that battle with you. I think there is intent to help on the part of institutional resources, but it's not been smooth. I also wonder about the opportunities for joining, because a lot of us belong to other research groups, and we're all interested in not reinventing wheels or duplicating efforts. And so I'm wondering about um, some trials that may overlap. So we're very specifically critical care trials, but we would like to look at you know, some outcomes in diabetes, which then leads into a lot of the outpatient stuff. So I'm wondering about overlap between groups and working together. Sure. I guess we're just getting started with that, so that may be a future um, yeah, in fact, we're finding that as this network is developing, uh, that we're reaching out and forming uh, uh, collaborative relationships with other networks or with individual NIH-funded groups like uh, the I Am Healthy, which came out of a, a single R01-funded investigator in Kansas, partnering with Idea States, and we are now doing uh, or will do a clinic-based version of the trial that's being done in Kansas. So yeah, I think coordination is going to be key. Um, do either of you want to make any comments? Carolyn, well actually everybody, the, many of us have been very interested in the National Children's Study, you know, that billion dollar behemoth that was canceled a couple of years ago. And there was this promise of a, of a fair amount of money that was going to follow on that so that, that Everything that had been gained by, by finding the, the mother-child pairs and identifying them and being able to track them would not be lost. Um, is, is there still, are there still resources from that? Is that database still available? Are, are our projects, Arsenic and others, linking to, to those databases? What, what happened? I, I can take a stab at that and then let Carolyn uh, correct me or <laughs> add to uh, what I say. We're not totally sure um, exactly what happened to those resources, but this is, I suspect that some of those unspent resources from the child health study were transferred to ECHO and the IDEA states. Um, much of our funding um, is already established for the four years of funding that we're, uh, we're projected to have in the initial cycle. Um, the cohorts that are established for ECHO, some of them emanate from the child health study, so they're building on the infrastructure that the child health study um, established. Uh, so the funding and the infrastructure and even some of the old data is available, uh, is being used by the, this new ECHO program out of the NIH director's office. What's a little uncertain for us is what happens after the four-year cycle that we're currently in. Um, and we know that, I think this week, there's a, a discussion between the ECHO leadership and the NIH director's office as to what the future holds. Uh, will there be a recompetition, that sort of thing? We think there will be. We think there will be more funding, but there's been no promise. In fact, we've been uh, really limited to designing studies that can be completed in our four-year first funding cycle. Um, so there's some uncertainty, uh, but I think we will go forward beyond beyond the four years. And I think what you're hearing today is is being built on the foundation of the old child health study. No, I, I, I mean I think that's exactly what's happened. Um, the, the national child health study just really did not get off the ground for multiple reasons. It was going to be a very ambitious long-term epidemiological study, um, really studying to answer some, some critical questions, and I think there were a lot of us who had great hopes for that. Um, but the cohorts that those, those funds created, along with these other extant cohorts, are now really using big science and a lot of our techniques now to actually take the power of combining these cohorts and all the different uh, samples and data from them from across the country and grouping them. So it's, 
it's really the NIH's first effort of this real kind of group effort science. And I, um, the complexity at times is sort of mind-boggling. And um, I think Margaret Carragas has probably aged maybe 10 years in the year, first year of the ECHO grant. But, um, but that is what, where they're putting their, their resources and hopes in terms of trying to answer some of these larger questions of, you know, why, why instance in autism? Why instance all these, these, in, these conditions which we really believe and have evidence to state are environmentally mediated or at least um, combined with other factors and how can we unravel this? And so I think our investment in the NIH Child Health Study, I believe, hasn't been for naught. It's just how do we harness that and then combine with other existing cohorts. And then, so do the, the ECHO sites map to the same groups that did the not National Children's Study? Not completely, but pretty closely. And the same investigators are Quietly making the shift. Some, yes. <laughs> Thank you. So, so thanks very much. And like I, like we've all said, stay tuned. And, uh, feel free to reach out to us, and we'll certainly be reaching out to uh, to you over the next year or two.